Welcome to Medicus, a student-run podcast about any and all things in the world of medicine. Follow along as we interview outstanding individuals about important topics in healthcare. Hey everyone, this is another episode of Medicus. This is Mara, and today I'm co-hosting with Josh. Hey guys, how are you doing? You all know that we are medical students, and I want to start today's episode off by reflecting a little bit on what it took for us to get to this point, because today we're going to be discussing the medical school admissions process. So let's flash back to summer 2016. I submitted my main AMCAS application in June, then I did secondaries specific to each school in July, and then I waited all of August and most of September, and I heard nothing back. And it was the hardest two months of my life because I put so much work leading up to, into applying, and then it felt like I wasn't qualified and I had wasted all this time and money, and what the heck was I gonna do with my life if I didn't even get an interview from a medical school? And it's interesting though because for myself, I knew that I could improve my application and apply again because that's a common thing to do. But then you get your family and your friends asking you, what are you up to now that you've graduated? And you tell them, oh, I'm applying to medical school. And they just tell you, oh, you'll get in, no problem. <laughs> because they're used to you being a high achieving individual, people applying to medical school are. And they just don't get the process at all. And it's an awful feeling. You feel like you're gonna let everyone down and it, it can be a really tough time, it was for me. But then at the end of two months of waiting, I got three interview invites within three days and everything changed uh, really quickly. And it made me really frustrated with the application process because it seemed unpredictable and it, and it could be unfair. Uh, but the reality is that medical schools have over 10,000 applications, typically for less than 200 spots a year. So they have to find people who are interested in medical school for the right reasons and people who are going to be able to succeed both in medical school and after as a physician. So it's not only hard for the people applying, but it's really tough for the schools too. And today we're gonna to try and unravel the medical school admissions process to see how schools go about admitting students each year. To do this, we have a special guest with us today. We are here with Dean Sunny Nakai, um, who is our Assistant Dean for Admissions at Loyola. Uh, welcome, Dean Nakai. Yeah. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to, to have you on here. Um, maybe to start off, maybe we could start with like introductions. Could you tell maybe our listeners a little bit about your background? Sure. So I started off uh, studying human development and family science and then uh, was just interested in kind of the, the womb-to-tomb development, psychosocial aspects of, of development. And uh, before that, I really thought that I wanted to go into medicine or some sort of helping profession. So when I was in middle school, I volunteered at a local hospital in Oregon where I grew up. And I decided that I really don't do bodily fluids <laughs> at all. And I actually don't like sick people that much. Mm. And I actually don't like the healthcare environment that much. Mm. So I was like, all right, that's out. Um, so human development was kind of the next thing of just sort of studying people and what makes them tick. Um, and then I uh, became interested in social work. Uh, I got a job at University of Utah School of Medicine as the I was a program coordinator. It was my very first job out of college in diversity and community outreach. And I was doing eyeball dissections and all sorts of hands-on science activities, trying to get kids interested in science and medicine. And then I also worked with medical students who helped volunteer for those programs. And I loved working with the medical students. Um, I got to work with undergraduate programs and just really enjoyed higher ed. So while I was pursuing social work, um, I also discovered that it was emotionally exhausting to do social work. And I was really good at it. My my write-ups and my reviews were good, but it was uh, 
pretty emotionally taxing. I couldn't see myself doing it for my entire career. So because I loved higher ed so much and I was working in it and I was, um, I had become the director of that office, I decided to stay in um, primarily medical education. And I moved to Chicago to do my doctorate in higher ed at Loyola University of Chicago. And I studied um, backgrounds of applicants to medical school and looked at stratification and inequality among applicants, specifically mm. comparing different demographics and different college environments and did kind of a, a you know, fancy hierarchical linear analysis to kind of look at um, some of the inequalities and uh, across the pool. So um, when I finished my doctorate, then I was recruited here to Loyola. Um, I was at Northwestern for eight years before that. Little brief little stint uh, in Streeterville. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I did a lot of uh, diversity and equity work in Northwestern um, in the MD program, PT program, in all their GME programs as well. So that I, I loved my time there. And then I was recruited here to be uh, assistant dean for admissions. So that's very cool. Yeah. What expectations did you have for what the dean of admissions job would look like? And did that change once you started in <laughs> the role? <laughs> um, I don't think I quite. Uh, I'd always been working with admissions and done a lot of, not the direct stuff, but knew how the process worked and started developing expertise to help applicants. Um, even at Utah, we were running applicant workshops and seminars and personal statement stuff. So I've been doing applicant advising for a long time. But coming on the inside of it um, and dealing with the structural pieces of it. Um, and I also came at a really opportune time because MCAT 2015 was brand new. Mm-hmm. And we needed to do some retooling of our committees. Um, LCME was coming. And so it was like the Jesuit baptism by fire. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a lot more complicated than, than I originally thought. So I don't know what my, I, I just thought it would be a new adventure. I think I went in pretty open-ended. And then when I got here, I was like, oh my God, you've got to be kidding me. Like it was so much to think about. And knowing what I know about equity and thinking about a process moving forward that meets the demands of structural justice that I think the mission-based institution that we are needed, um, that was a big challenge. And so working with faculty to create something that we felt like enacted our vision for the school was um, was a lot. And remember, admissions is cyclical. So I'm finishing the 2014 cycle and having to design and get ready to queue up the 2015 cycle at the same time. Like there's mm-hmm. no downtime, it's just constantly. So having to design something and get all of the IT framework ready to go to launch the next cycle while you're seeding. So 20, the class of 2019 is like a miracle class. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't know how they're all here. I don't know how somehow it happened, you know. Oh, um, it was a really crazy year. I mean, I think sometimes if applicants really knew how the sausage was made, they'd be like, really? Seriously? <laughs> that's, that's the thing? Yeah, so. Hmm. That's pretty interesting. Um, okay, so maybe kind of going into that a little bit. Uh, as a dean, you're pretty uniquely positioned to kind of influence medicine, right? Um, on the one hand, you can select applicants and it almost creates kind of like a selective pressure in 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 regards to like the evolution of medicine who actually comes out of your program and mm-hmm. what they then future go on to do in the future um, additionally you can also shape policy here just the institution and kind of create systemic changes mm-hmm. um, have there been any particular aspects or issues in medicine that you've been particularly passionate about that you think need to be changed and have kind of become your personal mission yeah well I think um, the access to medicine has been a problem since medicine began. So as part of the work that I did in my dissertation, I, I studied the history of medical education. And um, I think what a lot of people don't know is that um, 
at the turn of the century in the early in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there were tons of different kinds of doctors, and they all could call themselves doctors or physicians. And there were botanists and Thomsonians and bone setters and all sorts of different types of apothecaries, and, and they all sort of would hang up a plaque and call themselves uh, physicians. And so the allopaths um, really wanted to codify this more uh, steeply and create a, a more defined pathway. And so the AMA began to form in the late 1800s, and they were just for private and for-profit medicine. And so they did a whole review of all of the different medical schools that existed and published this review that said, shockingly, that allopathic medicine was the best <laughs> and slammed everyone else. And they got no traction on moving any of this forward in public policy because championing yourself and saying that you're objective in doing so just doesn't fly. Right. So then they decided to take a different approach and they got the Carnegie Institute for the Advancement of Teaching and um, a whole group together to do this external review, enter Abraham Flexner. And uh, he did this review of the medical schools, but it is my belief that he didn't actually review every single school because mm -hmm. if you look at like how long it took to get places back then, he could not have done all. I think there were well over 60, 70, 80, 100 schools at that time. So I don't think that he really did them all. I think that he did uh, a cursory check of several of the different schools um, that were on the AMA's list of the review that they had previously done. Um, and interestingly, Abraham Flexner was the child of uh, school teachers from the South and the Reconstruction South. Mm -hmm. And so he had a lot of beliefs about equity. Um, for his time, he was a feminist. Uh, his wife was an actor in Europe. He was a single dad. He raised his two daughters. He marched in women's suffrage movements. And he wrote things like he didn't believe that people's birthright should determine their fate. He believed that their talent, their gifts should be what determines their fate. And so he fought for equity um, in ways that maybe we didn't even understand um, back then. But uh, if you remember your kind of educational history, Plessy versus Ferguson was the order of the day and separate but equal was the rule. And when Flexner came on board and published his report, there were the black medical schools to consider. And there was quite a bit of consternation about what do we do with these schools? And there was a lot of push to just sort of let them be and let them have their own accreditation. Mm -hmm. And Flexner said it's better for them to have fewer schools of equal renown than many schools that are subpar. Like we do not want to resign our black communities because there was a lot of segregation, right? Like black doctors took care of only black people. Mm -hmm. um, and I think his decision to create that structural equity and accreditation is why we are not more behind in diversity now um, because he, he said accreditation is equal. So when we were ready to integrate, then people could go from Howard and Morehouse to UCLA and Charles Drew went there and he invented he you know discovered plasma and did, you know just mm -hmm. all of the innovations that happened um, when we started to catch up our societal notions of that segregation was wrong there were not accreditation barriers people didn't have to go and recertify they didn't have to have their education be less than in any way um, he actually wrote um, Flexner did that the black medical schools were some of the best schools particularly Howard and Meharry at the time that their labs were better their teaching was better um, there were times that the AMA, it published its annual review of medical education. It would say like how many indigent patients there were that people could learn on and, mm -hmm. you know, all of these different things. And there were many times that the AMA tried to downgrade the black schools and um, Flexner essentially threw a fit in those meetings and said, you, you will not like, no, that, that is, that is not uh, integrity for this institution. Um, and so I think he, sometimes he gets a bad rap because many of the schools, um, merged. Many of the women's schools, for example, are schools that trained indigenous people, disappeared or merged with other schools. But he fought for that equal standard, I think, well before um, Brown versus Board, which is 40 years later. Mm -hmm. So 
um, I think my view of medicine is heavily informed by that history that um, some of the requirements that Flexner came up with, the pre-med requirements, for example, they're the same as 1910. So, I mean, maybe we need to update them a little bit. Um, we just And so the, sort of the weed out mentality, I don't think that that was the, um, the pure intent. I think they wanted to make it more rigorous, but the, the net effect of weeding out people exists. And so um, medicine is a profession that's socially engineered, and the people who founded it are white, you know, hetero, mm-hmm. cis, wealthy, Judeo-Christian dudes. Mm-hmm. So not surprising that we have all sorts of problems in medicine today with meeting the needs of underserved communities and even women's health and LGBT health and all this because that is not the the roots and seeds of medicine. So I think that that informs my view of my job as an admissions dean is to think about health equity in, because we are not just allowing people an educational opportunity. We're choosing individuals to be members of this profession that then are the ones who also train and endorse and mentor the next generation of physicians and the next generation of physicians. So, right. yeah. You mentioned the establishment of the prerequisites um, mm-hmm. for entering medical school. Is that kind of the dawn of the admissions process and how has it changed since then? When did what we think of admissions now, when did that start? Um, I think it's changed quite a bit. Um, some of the people on our committee remember just coming in and saying, hey, can I get an interview? And somebody interviewed them and then just told them that day that they were in medical school. So I think it's changed quite a bit. Um, I think that the the you know pre-med advising and um, schools actually, colleges and universities actually created their pre-med tracks and their, their science major tracks to be in parallel with what medical schools wanted. And so you have a little bit of like the tail wagging the dog. Um, and now it's, it's getting to be um, kind of crazy, like the way that the pre-med sequences are set up at most schools, for example, have you doing a ton of science in your first two and a half years. And the reason for that is because the MCAT used to be paper and pencil back when dinosaurs roamed the earth and we had scantrons. You guys even know what a scantron is? Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So maybe some of our listeners are like, what's that? Um, But yeah, back when there was paper and pencil, the MCAT was only offered in April and August and it took six weeks to get your results because it had to be graded by machine from all around the country. And so um, pre-med tracks did all their coursework so everyone would finish everything by the first semester of their junior year mm. which now you don't have to do because mm-hmm. we have the MCAT multiple times a year and you can take it blah 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 so I think those tracks are a bit antiquated and they are very one-size-fits-all um, and they don't take into account what your previous preparation is in sciences what your high school looked like and so a lot of people just think oh, if I want to be a doctor I have to do exactly this and then they get all this feedback that they're not good at science when maybe they're just starting at the wrong level or they're, you know, they're not being eased in properly. Um, and then they walk away and then they end up in my office 10 years later saying, I'm a post student, I really want to do medicine. Here I am. And um, they end up in medicine. <laughs> I mean, the ones that really want to do it, I think, end up in medicine anyway. But um, we lose them to medicine for maybe 10 years when they would have been a doctor that much sooner. Mm-hmm. So. so do you recommend then that if, stu- if a student's passionate about something else, but they also like medicine, that they pursue kind of that alternate track of going like I had a friend who for example applied to medical school um, after doing like Spanish lit was his major and he went and did publications in Spanish lit and for him it was such a, an advantage because it, it made him very diverse in comparison to all the other people that were applying do, yeah do you recommend that then or is that I I recommend you leave with passion yeah. always because it's you cannot fake authenticity right it sounds mm-hmm. like a silly thing to say but pe- I mean you just have to do things that you love to do and I think um, the secret I, I wrote a book and I'm hoping that it can get published soon it's in review right now 
But I wrote a book, and the secret sauce in my book is really, um, spoiler alert, <laughs> it's really decide what you're passionate about and what your gifts are and make other people's lives better doing those things. Mm-hmm. And if you follow that pathway, you'll be a very authentic and very happy applicant. And then if things really don't go your way, you're going to have all these things that you love that you've been pursuing that you can choose to do. And you're not going to say, I went totally for broke for medicine and I did all these things that I kind of hated, mm-hmm. right? I did research and it was so boring and I hated it. And then all of that for what? Like. Right. So I think if you genuinely interrogate, like, what do I love to do? And what do I, where do I feel my gifts are? And how can I pursue those things? You'll end up doing something that you love and that contributes to society in a, in a great way, whether that's medicine or something else. So, yeah. 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 Um, maybe kind of just a follow-up to that, because this is this idea of authenticity. This is something that really kind of uh, struck me as I was doing my application process and even doing the interview process. Um, and maybe I can kind of just, like, give a story to kind of kind of illustrate what I'm talking about. So I had a friend, I'm not going to like, I don't want to put this person, I don't want to <laughs> throw him under the bus. So I'm going to say I had a friend. Okay. And as they were going through their interview here at Loyola, um, so their first interview was with a faculty member and it was kind of an extensive interview where they, um, you know, talked about research and all the different things that was on his application. Um, and then the follow-up interview was with a student, right? And the student this person was coming back from interviewing at a residency type thing um and they came into it and they're like i'm going to be very frank and up on like honest with you i haven't had a chance to really deeply review your application um but it's going to be okay and this person asked like do you want me to give you five minutes to like look over this so that (laughs) you're not like completely unprepared for this and they were like no it's okay like we can you know this is going to be a little bit of a exploration um we're going to get through this and the interview ended up being a little bit shorter than their first one and when they came to the end they were like oh my gosh like my last one was you know 45 minutes to an hour and this one was only like 20 to 30 minutes and so this person this friend of mine was like you know scrambling like oh my gosh like I'm ending this interview this is not a good sign like this needs to be you know lengthened out and they need to get all this information about me Mm -hmm. and so they just asked this person the interviewer do you have you know what else do you want to know about me you know I feel like this is really short you know is am I doing something wrong and the interviewer is like you know my job has been to basically determine if you're just a great person if you're normal if I can have a conversation with you if you're the type of person that I would you know go out on a weekend with because you're you know an interesting and engaging um and the missions part does a lot of that weeding out beforehand. They're, they do a really good job of finding out who's authentic and who's not. So how how does how do you do that? How do you figure that out? Yeah. <laughs> like, um, well, I think we we start out with understanding that um, being able to do the science in medical school is not the same as being able to be a doctor, right? right. So. Um, nationwide, I think the last time I looked at the grid, people with 90th percentile MCATs and above and 3.8s to 4.0s, um, there's a couple thousand people in the country that apply to medical schools across the country that are in that little category, numbers-wise, that don't get in anywhere. Mm. Uh, and it's because we interview. We do want to know what your interpersonal skills are. Um, and across the board, the pool is so qualified. Like our average GPA for applicants is like 3.55. Um, you know, and the average MCAT is like, I think, 508 or something. Just really great numbers um and the numbers don't really determine whether you're going to be a great doctor i mean do either of you know what your doctor's step one score is or mcat score is no do you know what they got in organic chemistry no have you ever asked anyone before you let them i don't know cut you open right what's your mcat score you know like you don't you you care about whether they can um 
meet you at eye level and understand what your health needs are. And, um, and we trust our healthcare providers implicitly, um, just almost from the very beginning. And so understanding the kind of person that you are um, is important. So we do that through our essays, um, mm-hmm. through the levels of ref- trying to assess levels of reflection in applicants. Um, we do that through letters of recommendation, what other people say about you, but what other people don't say about you. Mm-hmm. Um, so really common letters of recommendation are, you know, uh, Sunny came to my class, she sat in the front row, she took notes every day, she was on time, she got 90th percentile and such and such, pretty smart person, not a sociopath, good to go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not anything really specific, right? So that that's, that's um, yes, I can push this person forward as a candidate for your consideration, but we really like the letters that are um, more specific. So what's great about Sunny is that when other people are struggling, um, she cared a lot about everybody else's performance, or this is how this student added to the classroom discussion, or this is the level of critical thinking that they displayed, or I watched them care for classmates in a certain way. And just we like the personal endorsements that we see um, for applicants and their qualities and characteristics. So not just in the classroom, but also in the community or in clinics or um, workplaces. Um, one of the students here at Stritch um, worked for a company and we got a letter from his company that he had worked for for many years while he was going to school and um, it was like this person volunteers to work holidays so other people don't have to then has done so for years this person will be the first one to walk uh, team members to their cars at night when they're leaving when the parking lot is empty and other people don't feel safe like it was just so above and beyond and the committee just was like you know, raising their hand right away to vote yeah. for this person. Like, I move that we accept this yeah. person. So um, we we look for those those character endorsements as well. Um, and especially when people have pursued medicine despite hardship, mm-hmm. um, I think a good admissions process does reveal that grit and the commitment and that motivation um, and rewards that. Because when people decide, like, this is really what I want to do and I'm going to pursue it, despite it taking longer or incurring a lot of debt or not having a perfect record uh, at the very beginning uh, is something that we try to value because when things get hard that person really wants to be there right, right. that person is going to dig deep and find a way to to stick it out rather than say oh this is hard and and go down that rabbit hole of, of self-pity and I'm such a broke med student why am I doing this and you know you guys are experiencing a little bit of the med school lull <laughs> of people um the 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 pity party is catching, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just, I have to study and da, da, da. And it's like, you have an opportunity that thousands of people wanted and you have it. You're one of the people, right, that got a seat. And so it's hard to wake up and remember that every day. But um, it is an important part of just, you know, securing that that motivation for yourself. So yeah, I love that attitude. That's something we try to foster here. I think that we we get to be here and this is even on weekends when we have an exam coming up and I'm stressed, sometimes you just sit back and think, like, this is awesome. This is really what I want to be doing. Yeah. I had a former student who um, grew up in the Central Valley of California, and um, a lot of people were farming and migrant workers and, you know, did uh, flowers, roses, dethorning them, vegetables, things like that. And people would complain, oh, I didn't get out of clerkship till 7. It was so awful. And he would just say, beets, bacon, lettuce. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just every time, he was like, beets, bacon, lettuce. <laughs> like, you worked in an air-conditioned hospital till 7 p.m. Mm. Boo-hoo. Mm. You know, <laughs> like, just a little bit of perspective. And not to invalidate the challenges and the struggles um, that currently exist in medical education, but I think um, remembering why you chose to be there. You know, I was helping, let's go back and read your AMCAS application. Like, right. do you do you know yourself? And do you, you look at what you did and say, wow, I did all these things to really get to where I am, you know? Yeah, mm-hmm. it can give you so much more resiliency if you're focused on the good things. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so you kind of touched on this a little bit. Admissions, it's been kind of through this evolution. What have been kind of some of the more recent changes that have been important to its current state? Yeah, so I think um, if we go back to uh, some Supreme Court cases in education, there was uh, the Gruder and Gratz cases against Michigan in 2004. And on the heels of those decisions, um, medicine started to follow more of a holistic review framework. If you recall, um, the one case was struck down because it was assigning sort of points to characteristics that people couldn't really control, like their gender or their race. And they said, you can't really do that. But individualized holistic review was upheld, and the court said schools have a right to shape their classes. Schools have a right to build a class that they think, in this case it was a law school, that, that can serve the needs of, of the country uh, in the field of law. And um, the courts give a lot of deference to the educational environment and educational mission uh, that a school wants to undertake. And so um, the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, began advancing holistic review on this big initiative and published a lot of stuff on how to make holistic review legally rigorous and how to align all the the policies within enrollment management in terms of financial aid and recruitment and student support for holistic review and uh so so that's been i think the biggest change over the last like you know decade and a half is moving towards holistic review and trying to widen the gates um to look at candidates who don't fit a traditional mold. I mean, students have really changed that as well. We, we used to call people who took a gap year non-traditional, and now more people take a gap year than don't. So we just we need new language because we can't say that they're non-traditional. So now we say like maybe if they're out for three years or more. But then people are saying, well, students are doing all sorts of things, and I think recognizing that um, that it's about their entire lives, not just I got to hurry and get into medical school, and then I got to hurry and get through medical school, and then you hurry and get through residency, and then you hurry and practice, and then you hurry and die. Like, what? what right. is the point of all this hurrying? <laughs> so people are like, I'd really like to teach for a while, or I want to spend some time developing a business with my family, or I want, you know, like people are doing um, a lot of really varied and eclectic things that I think are benefiting medicine in the end, because there's a broader perspective um, in the profession that's important. So um, building, trying to build diversity. Um, is, is a really key uh, facet. And I also think um, in my dissertation, I wrote a lot about socioeconomic diversity and that that gap has always existed and people have um, not really shined that much of a light on the gap. And so we had um, racial self-identification voluntary on the MCAS application long before we had anything that um, described in any way that we could sort easily socioeconomic status. Mm -hmm. So we developed an educational opportunity scale, an EO1 uh, it goes one through five scale that looks at parents' education and parent occupation, and that's been on the application, gosh, I want to say maybe the last like seven or eight years mm -hmm. um, to help us. But, you know, as we were advising these teams at AMCAS and AMC saying, if it's not a data point that we can sort for, it's hard for us to integrate it into a process with, you know, ten to 15,000 applications. And so it's not a perfect scale, but it does look at um, the highest, you know, so the highest uh, level of, of education that either of your parents have achieved and what your parents do um, for a living based on, like, the, you know, Bureau of Labor and Statistics job categories and tries to give us a little bit of a sense of, of low-income students. Um, and that has increased enrollment for low-income students, just making that uh, more visible and more usable in the data structure of the application. Mm -hmm. And looking at all this criteria that students put on their applications, are there, when you're trying to build a diverse class, are there enrollment goals that schools use? So I think all schools want to have a diverse class, right? You want to have people from different backgrounds. Um, you want to have a good mix. 
Um, I call it the Motley Crew. You want the Motley <laughs> Crew because they'll learn a lot from each other uh, in terms of, of their different backgrounds and their different journeys. And I think it's a good experience for students to say, I met this person and I made a lot of assumptions about their background and turns out they're an immigrant just like me from a very different country or they speak another language like I do or you know both of their parents are also not in medicine or both of their parents are in medicine or just the differences. Um, so I think every school aims to have a, a very diverse class. Um, you really can't do like a quota because the applicants make the first decision and the last decision. So my friend um, Eric Porfelli, uh, who's also admissions dean, um, that is sort of his little nugget of wisdom for admissions teams is to understand applicants decide whether or not they want to apply to you in the first place, and then they decide in the end where they're going. So we could, if we, even if we tried to say like we want X number of, you know, certain type of group they could all withdraw and then we wouldn't have any left in our pool you know so it's just you try to like attend to diversity within all of those sub pools and subcategories as much as possible but in the end you sort of so we try to have diversity through the process so at the end we have a diverse class because um, you really can't titrate um, the numbers of people that you have unless you're at like one of the top 10 schools then they probably could because if people if they're making people offers those people will probably choose them over other schools that they're going to but for the remaining, you know, large section of the pools of the other 140 schools, uh, it's a lot harder to try to um, have an enrollment quota of any mm -hmm. kind in your management process. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, so there's kind of a current issue that's been kind of going on, and so this question is coming from that. Um, are, are you familiar with like what's going on with like Harvard and the yeah. Asian American students that are claiming that there's like a, a reverse discrimination that's kind of happening? Mm -hmm. How do you balance like diversity versus uh, qual or applicant quality, at least on paper? Maybe mm -hmm. not necessarily like actual like in person. Right. Um, how how do you go about like mitigating that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think their argument is just largely based on numbers, right, and mm -hmm. test scores, and saying you know certain students are getting downgraded or not getting credit for interpersonal skills or all these other things and. Um, we don't choose physicians with numbers. Right. Um, the fact that no one knows what their doctor's numbers are speaks to the how not important mm -hmm. they are in being able to um, become a good physician. You have to have the science foundation. You have to be able to take and pass your licensing exams because you can't be a physician in the United States if you don't pass the USM at least. Um, but beyond that, it, we don't have any evidence to suggest that if you score really high on your boards, you're a better doctor. Mm -hmm. In fact, we have the opposite. We have uh, a study from Northwestern that was done um, by Diane Wayne and her colleagues, where she looked at uh, who the chief residents were in their very large medicine program over you know a vast number of years and found that step one was not associated with who the chief residents were. I mean, in a really busy medicine service, um, the skill set needed to become a chief resident was not associated with step one performance. Hmm. Um, so I, I think um, some of it is kind of working backwards and saying, what are the outcomes that we're actually looking for? The other thing is the numbers don't tell the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, so a patient is not going to say, do I have A, psoriasis, B, impetigal? Like they're not going right, to not give multiple you choice. multiple <laughs> choice. You have to be an inductive thinker, right, a creative mm -hmm. thinker. And a lot of those standardized exams don't reward creative thinking. The more you perseverate, the, the worse you do, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of problem solving, uh, a broad skill set is really needed. Uh, you could take an easier undergraduate pathway. You could take an easy major. You could do the minimum number of science. You could do that science over eight years to make sure that you have a perfect 4.0. I'm not sure you're real prepared for medicine if that was your path because there is no um, 
challenge like, or yeah i mean in med school it's very fast paced and they're going to throw it all at you and there's not a you don't get to choose your own adventure in medical school it's a cohort <laughs> throw everything at you as you guys know so making sure that someone is prepared like somebody could also have tons and tons of withdrawals i mean i've looked at applications where people have attempted physics three times withdrawn three times finally taken it and gotten a that scares the bejesus out of me as an admissions dean because there's no like oh let me try mcbg mm-hmm. and oh never mind i don't like you it's not like double dutch you can't just oh i don't want to go in yet oh i don't want to go in yet <laughs> like it's a whole cohort model but it gets on the bus everybody does the class everybody passes everyone moves on to the next thing so um and, and also just in terms of scores i think people who um spend uh a really concentrated dedicated amount of time and do all the fancy test prep and everything that's great but you also don't have copious amounts of time to do your test prep in medical school so i want a very confident good learner self-driven learner and a strong test taker who knows that they can pass and who knows how much effort is required to achieve a desired outcome like that is the most important academic preparation that i look for can you decide how much you need to do to get your desired result? Because if you don't have a grip on that algorithm, you're at risk for failure. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. If you actually don't know why you're getting the grades you're getting, you're at risk for failing. Because you may have a study technique that's not effective, but just because you happen to be lucky or you happen to be able to get away with it that one time because the material's not that hard, you'll get away with it. Mm-hmm. So um, medical school is the first time that many people fail anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's harrowing, right? If it's the first time you've ever failed, it's like, what? Like, I've never failed anything in my whole life. It's like when I got a C on one of my papers in graduate school, I was like, I've never gotten a C in my entire life. (laughs) I'm an existential crisis of epic proportion. Um, But I think, again, it's that resilience. Okay, well, now what do I do now? I can't just fall apart. I mean, I can't just berate myself for weeks on end. I have to figure out how how to fill the gaps and how to address the deficits, and I need to get a new skill set. So... um, being able to assess whether applicants have the ability to do that. I mean, our committee often says, will this person listen? If mm-hmm. they start to struggle, will they listen? Will they take our advice? Will they use the resources that we have? Are they a person that uses resources? And do we see evidence of that in their past? Um, so I think those are um, important things that we look for beyond just the numbers. And I will say, um, when I came to Loyola, we didn't have a lot of Asian students at this school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it strange, and I asked some of our South Asian faculty members, how come there aren't more Asians here? Um, and it was just the way that our process was laid out, and we weren't particularly mission-driven, and we had a harder time um, trying to recruit students that chose us at the end of the day. So we would make you know, 58 offers. I think in one cohort we made 58 offers, and we got four yeses. Wow. Hmm. So it was a huge rejection rate from us. Like, we're dating the wrong people. Like, why yeah. are we doing this, right? <laughs> So once we drilled down and we, the committee changed our rubric to focusing on more mission fit, we started dating the right people. And we have a huge increase in enrollment um, in Asian American and South Asian students here. We didn't used to have a PAMSA. We didn't used to have SAMSA. We do now. So I think we have a critical mass across most of our groups because we've, um, we've led with our mission and we've tried to attend to diversity across that entire process. So while I think there are lots of opponents of holistic review that feel that it departs from numbers and thereby disenfranchises Asians, it's completely the opposite um, mm-hmm. of, that's happened at, at Loyola. We have the, the demographics to prove that that's the case. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of things that people need think that you need to have on your application, like leadership, um, volunteering, clinical experiences. Are there things that that you would say, yes, you definitely need to have those on your application? And is there any sort of rank of importance or something that you think is more important than something else? 
I mean, I think the accumulation of experiences is like the head fake. People feel like they're going down this checklist, right? And they're trying to punch all these aspects of their ticket. And I think pursuing things that you love to do is the most important. Um, I think you need to have a little bit of an idea of what you're getting into. Medicine's a big deal. It's really expensive. It takes a long time. So the last thing we want you to do is turn around and say, I don't really want to do this, right? Um, Schools are counting on your tuition. So that's kind of one of the larger reasons. It's not a very personal or lovely reason, but it's one of the reasons why they care about your motivation and commitment. Um, But also we're giving you a seat, right? And only four out of 10 people are going to get a seat at the end of the process. So we really want to make sure that we're giving it to people that that know that it's what they want to do. So um, sometimes you'll get asked to describe the average day in a doctor or just have you worked in or volunteered in a clinical environment. So however you get some exposure clinically, I think is an important piece. Some people get it through um, their family. I've read applications where people have been taking their parents or loved ones um, to get care and have served as interpreters or have served as um, healthcare helpers throughout their entire lives, and that's their main exposure. I think that that's okay. I think getting it from another perspective where you're a little removed is also helpful. Um, but I would say that um, some people get it through their own chronic illness and say, you know, this is what I know of medicine through through firsthand experience. Um, so knowing what you're getting into and how you do that's important. I think leadership is important because you are the leader of the healthcare team, whether you want to be or not. And um, learning how to work with people, learning how to manage conflict. Um, I think we are far too conflict averse and we are far too um, too willing to fire off all sorts of invectives and insults via social media and via our phones, but our face-to-face interactions are quite lacking in decorum and like when we really disagree, do we have the, the in-person face-to-face skills to abide in that? Um, and so sometimes working a customer service job is the best training for going into the <laughs> clinic and being, you know, the customer's upset. What do you do? I mean, so some of those real-world experiences are important. And I tend to have a bias towards um, students who work and students who have a little bit of real-world experience, whether that's teaching or whether they've done internships and things like that. Because I think being accountable to somebody other than yourself for your performance uh, that's what's going to happen all through your career uh, in medicine. The, you know, first of all, accountable to your patients, but also to your colleagues and the people that you work with for the care that you provide. So, mm-hmm. is there? So you've kind of touched on like grit. You've talked about being able to be a great uh, communicator, and and these seem like very unofficial qualities that you would you would not list this on like your application, right? Mm-hmm. Is there? Could you rank like what you would say would be the most important? Or I, I mean, that that's kind of a weird question, but. I, I, I don't know. Or what would be some of the other ones that you would look for? Yeah, I mean, I think grit resilience is important. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a I wrote a blog about uh, tough love for your personal statement. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I put in there is if we are betting on futures for like you're literally going to be could be our physician in four years. And we ask you to write about a life challenge that you've experienced. And you wrote about your hockey team not winning the championship when you were 13. I'm like, no. You're not ready to be my doctor. <laughs> that's the hardest thing. You, like, you're 21 now. The hardest thing that's happened to you is that you didn't win a hockey championship when you're 13. No. Right. Just no. So go above yourself and look at yourself as a prospective physician, mm-hmm. right? And think, are the challenges that I've undertaken so far in my life, have they prepared me to deal with life and death issues, quite literally? Like somebody else's health, somebody else's humanity. Um, So people get really caught up in sort of what do I have to do to get in Mm -hmm. rather than what kind of a person do I think I need to be so I could be ready to be someone's doctor in a pretty short amount of time. That transformation happens very, very quickly. And again, especially at Loyola, you're not just 
in medical school, you're becoming a physician. Like it is a transformation process of how do you come to physicianship and how do you integrate the spiritual and emotional and physical aspects of who you are into a lifelong career of becoming a doctor. Mm -hmm. Um, So, So let's start at the beginning of the application process, because when I, uh, as an applicant, would submit an application, it's it's like you put it all out there and then it seems like it's up to fate. You don't really know what goes on behind closed doors. So what happens when you first get applications in in the summer? Sure. So I want to know, I want applicants to know that we are not heartless people. (laughs) We get, um, we get so many emails sometimes of applicants that are just, they're emotionally unable to handle the process. And they lash out at us like, you guys just don't care. And I've been waiting forever. And it's like, okay, you're not helping yourself. So let's back up here for a second. Um, But we, you know, for Loyola, we get 15,000 AMCAS applications. Um, Another tip I think is important is, although you all apply very eagerly on June 1st, because you think that your fate is tied to like every single day in June that goes by, we don't even start downloading applications until July. Most schools don't, because we're still seeding our previous class. So your your download date to us is the same, whether you apply June 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, or June 30th. It's the same. Everything Mm -hmm. in June comes in in one giant batch in July. So Take time to do your application. Well, if you're ready to go on June 1st, great. If you're not, it's not the end of the world. Um, so once we download the MCAS applications, um, we send out, so schools. some schools will screen before they send you a supplemental. We don't. We invite everybody to complete a supplemental. Um, you. Once you've completed the supplemental, which includes um, any MCATs that are pending, has to be have to be done, and all of the letters of recommendation that you said you were going to send us. So if you say you're sending four and you only send three, and you say, oh, well, never mind, I'm not sending the fourth one, we don't know that. So you're just going to sit there in in complete status until you complete your application. So once your supplemental is completed, um, then we we sort them into priority buckets. Um, just uh, based on numbers. So higher numbers, we know we have to read them to determine merit. And then lower numbers, we send them to an expert screening team to read the applications and then decide which ones to push forward um, for a full review. Because um, there is such thing as just you're just not academically ready yet, right? Mm-hmm. So if your test, your testing may not be up to speed. It doesn't look like your science foundation is there. Like some people are applying who <clears throat> maybe are not getting advice about what they need to do to be prepared. So once we do that, they go out for a review to the committee, and they go out for a, a first review. Um, upon first read, if it comes back at a higher score level, then we pair it with another read that's independent, um, and then those scores are the ones that we consider for interview. And so we have kind of a threshold that we look at for interview, um, and we choose from among those who to interview. So it is a little bit first come, first serve, because if your application is late and we're just reading it now, you're probably going to be queued up for interviews in December, January, and we stop interviewing uh, mid to late February. So when people say rolling admissions, that's what it means, is that if your application is amazing, but you don't turn it in until October, it might not be batched out to be read um, before the interview season's even over. Um, and we try. We did more than, I think we did almost 11,000 reads last year. Mm-hmm. We have some faculty members that read 1,000 applications a season, which is, and they're volunteers. Like, I'm just blown away by the stretch uh committee the community here is so committed to holistic review we have students that read we have students that read 250 applications a year which is wow. like just a huge service right like and that, that's just it's citizenship right it's yeah. citizenship of saying like i care that we pick people who should be here who want to be part of um the mission of stretch and so people are just willing to give their time um, to do that so once um applicants are selected for interview we're only interviewing about 650 people 
Mm-hmm. So we're going from 11,000 you know, completed applications to 650. So if you get an interview, we like you a lot already. <laughs> so that's the first thing, just chill out. Like, you're all, like they picked you from among this huge pool. It means you already have all the right stuff. So like you're saying in your friend's story, we want to vet your people skills. We want to know how you talk to us. We want to know if you're arrogant. Um, I have this thing I post on my Facebook page, um, your friendly neighborhood admissions dean, and I always post like horror stories of things applicants <laughs> do and write and say. And my friends are like, never stop doing this. It's the best. <laughs> like every fall, we love the friendly admissions dean. Uh, but it's really like a way that I cope with the craziness sometimes. So I had an applicant this year. You guys, he winked at me. Like in the interview, like was talking about oh, being a performer and was saying like that he never makes mistakes. And so he made a joke and I think he wanted me to know that it was a joke. And so he like literally just <laughs> wink. And I was like, okay, I've never given this tip before, team, but never wink in an interview. It's just weird. Like you just come across straight. And so do you have a strange affect? Can you talk to people? Um, some applicants are so anxious to sell themselves that they just are over the top or they're too rehearsed and it doesn't feel like they can genuinely have a conversation. Um, some people are, are not willing to answer deep questions about what they've learned or they're unable to, that maybe they haven't thought about, what did I learn working at this free clinic? How have I reflected? I like to ask people, why do you think people are poor? Why don't people have health care? Mm-hmm. Um, if you've never thought about that, it's hard to answer those questions in an interview. So we try to look for depth, um, depth of experience. So again, you can have this really fancy resume. It makes us really excited to meet you. And then you come in person. And if you really can't back it up with who you are as a person, that's really what we're looking for in the interview. And that you know a little bit about our school. Right. Um, so don't write your supplemental essays a love letter to Michigan because you forgot to... <laughs> cut and paste and change out and like oh good you want to go to Michigan okay go on go on to Michigan then (laughs) bye-bye what parts of the process are um not secret but more confidential versus is there a part that's open that other people can view most schools the admissions process is pretty closed Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a fan of transparency I think that absent the details people make up um, the worst imagination and call that to be true. So anybody who participates in the stretch admissions committee, including students who read um, files or interview, can come to our executive admissions committee as observers and sit in um, and see it. And if I have alums or faculty that have questions or think about joining the committee, I invite them to come to executive committee to witness our deliberations and how we discuss and, um, and what our mission anchors are in our discussions. Um, I think that people often have uh, wild ideas about how that happens, and it's it's actually not not that exciting. <laughs> so, um, in in the final phases, um, our interviewers fill out a rubric as well, and then we have a, a third layer of our quality control committee. It's called our selection committee that gives a final score. So they look at what people said in review, which is like, here's your score on paper, here's your score in person, and here's what we think your final score should be. Kind of synthesizing everything. Um, and then our executive committee looks at the, the totals of those final scores um, of rubric, which are mission areas, and then final scores, which are um, just the total scores. And then we, we vote. So people who are above the thresholds that the committee establishes, we vote them in automatically because we don't need to talk about them again. And anybody who misses one or the other thresholds or who's below that, but we feel that something aberrant happened in their process or we really like them, we will want to bring them up for discussion. Um, we do that NFL draft style. So we have a, a slide and we those people have to be voted in one by one. So we have nine voters, nine executive committee members. So we're all faculty at Stritch. Um, they vote and I don't have a vote. So hmm. um, if you try and send me a 
large amount of money, which I, uh, has happened to me before, really? uh, I will just send it back because I actually can't guarantee that I can get your kid in, nor would I ethically do that. But right. like procedurally, um, none of the admissions, like all of the admissions office are ex officio. We have a student on the committee who's ex officio that participates in discussions. Um, we have reps from different um, mission areas in the school that come as ex officio as well. So is there like, are there any common mistakes that you just see on applicants either on their application or during interviews that you wish people would just kind of pay attention to these things and, and kind of cut those out, just get them out of here? I think a big one is um, don't be on your phone. And I hear about this on the residency interview trail too much too. Like you just seem really disengaged. Even if you're taking notes on your phone, like don't. Just get a piece of paper and write notes on a piece of paper because you just look like who you could be playing Candy Crush or whatever mm-hmm. on your phone and people don't um, people don't know. So um, being engaged I think is important. Uh, I think students often try to memorize things for their interview or they just memorize their application and then they repeat their application. And I'm like, I already read your application, right. <laughs> like new conversation. And so if you give the same story or the same example or the same reflection that I've already read, I sort of feel like there's nothing there's nothing else there. Yeah. Like you've been Very super superficial. Yeah. yeah. So I think just being yourself is, is really key and, um, and just being genuine in how you're pursuing it. Um, you have to know something about the school you're interviewing at. Um, don't say things like, I really want to come because I'm a big Bears fan. It doesn't have a lot to do with Loyola. So, um, but yeah, know about the programs. And um, I really like to talk to applicants who are exploring a fit. Like, I here are my goals. Like, I'm interested in global health. I'm interested in community. I'm interested in health disparities. I like, you know, I want to learn medical Spanish. Like, they have sort of looked at their educational goals and what they want in a program. And they've looked at Stritch. And then they want more information about how that all fits together. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy um, talking to applicants just about their their goals and aspirations and um, to give them ideas about things in our curriculum that we offer at Stretch that could really enhance their experience here. Mm-hmm. So. so I think post-interview would be the next step. Um, so while students are waiting to hear back, do you think it's appropriate to send a letter of interest or any updates? What kind of things would you think students should include in something like that? Yeah, so anxiety phase two is post-interview, right? <laughs> then you're just waiting and you're like, no, they hate me. Um, and you know, sometimes it's just not, I mean, applicants take the process so personally, right? Like, oh, they, you know, they didn't, they didn't love me personally. And it's really like, there's such a volume of applications that we get. And, um, we, we do post apps every year. So we will, um, let people schedule like phone or in-person meetings with our admissions counselors or with myself or Mr. Neighbors to, to, um, go over what they need to do to improve. And every year we have a few where people are really great applicants. They just weren't on our radar. Like they would have met the threshold to get an interview. They were totally interview worthy and we just, we just missed them or they just didn't advocate for themselves. So I do, um, I don't think that it hurts as much as I don't love all the emails that I get all the time. Um, I don't think it hurts to advocate for yourself just to put your, your name on the radar. I mean, board of trustees people do it they'll they'll email me and here's this person and i'll look them up and they have bang on scores and i'm like great well put them in the in the in the pool i can't change their score i don't do anything but it's just to get an application noticed especially if they have a specific interest in our school i'm always willing to do that i get probably a hundred or more emails from alums that are all over the place working with pre-meds as mentors that want to put their mentee on the radar for their alma mater i really appreciate that so um applicants should if you, you know that that's your number one school, uh, you should tell that school that they're your number one school and send an update because we do consider that sometimes in the committee, especially if you're just barely under our cut and we really like you, but 
as we've gone through and tried to be efficient with our process, we're revisiting our continued consideration. We will look at who's updated us, who's still interested, who's still checking in. Um, whether you send a thank you note after interview is up to you. Uh, I have no, I've never seen a scorecard that says, you know, points for a thank you note, demerits for no thank you note. Like we just don't care that much. Some schools put them all in a box and never give them to committee members. <laughs> um, some schools put them in a box and give them to committee members only at the end of the season. So you'll get your whole stack mm -hmm. of thank you notes. So they don't, I don't think they have a lot of influence in terms of whether or not um, you would get in. But also remember, if you make a genuine connection with someone, you can keep that connection whether you go to that school or not. Um, mm -hmm. And I've I've met with applicants that I loved that I tried to recruit really hard to stretch and ended up going somewhere else. And I keep in touch with them on Facebook or Instagram because I, I think they're great. So um, you're also building a professional network, uh, and you're and, which is also important to understand as an applicant um, to not act unprofessionally or don't be a jerk at one school because we know each other. Like mm -hmm. all the admissions, like we are on a first name basis with each other, and are, <laughs> there's not that many allopathic schools. So um, you know, our memories are long. No, I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> to scare everyone. But um, you, this is a profession, right? And so to look at us as though we are Best Buy and we are a consumer, you're a consumer and we're a purveyor is the wrong attitude to have. Like you're mm -hmm. asking to join a profession. This is a collegiality uh, of people in, in medicine and medical education. And so um, you have to represent yourself well. So um, don't have your parents write us a letter because it's not really that objective. Um, and we... <laughs> One year we got this like three page email from this mom just pleading for her son and she never gave us his name. We're like, okay. that was just oh about, I was like, that was, just, she needed to get it off her chest. It's, we're here for you and we don't know who your kid is. So now we can't follow up on his application. So, yeah. So if you're going to do it, do it for yourself. Don't have your mom do it. Do it through the official application update mm -hmm. and be appropriate. Yeah. And, and don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's if you, if there are programs or, um, you know, showing an interest in the schools is helpful. So we'll know, oh, this person came to one of our open houses or, you know, they um, they came, we remember them because they did a program at Stritch or something. I mean, you're representing yourself every step of the way. So, yeah. But don't stress about the thank you notes. If you genuinely would like to say thank you, great. If you don't, then that's also fine. <laughs> Are there any, um, having seen kind of like the other side, right, the admissions process, what types of questions should students come with? Because we're told, let me just rephrase this. When we come to interviews, we're told you should always come prepared with questions for your interviewer. So that mm -hmm. way you can uh, show that you're interested and not just like on a superficial level, you should genuinely be interested. But what are the things that people just don't clue in on? Like what are the things that students should be asking when they yeah. go to these interviews? Um, I. I think asking why your interviewer chose to be a part of the institution is helpful and insightful. Like, what do they like about the school? Mm -hmm. um, I also like to ask about the cons of the school, um, just just to know, like, every institution has, you know, things that it's our selling points and things that are drawbacks. Like, what might be some of the drawbacks for the institution? Um, in light of your goals, like, what are some of the things? Like, if someone were to say to me, like, I'm just really interested in working with Polish-speaking communities. What are the opportunities here for working with Polish-speaking communities? So things that are really specific to your application that articulate your interests are helpful. Um, applicants always ask me uh, if they say, like, you know, what are the drawbacks of Stritch? Then I'm like, IT. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, that's my cop-out answer. And it's actually a very good and genuine answer is that we're not, like, 
cutting edge when it comes to IT. Um, but, you know, we're there for students. And I think, um, and also just paying attention to what it feels like. I encourage applicants to, you know, brainstorm what their ideal medical school looks like before they start the interview process and then go through their own score sheet after they interview at various places and write down, like, how did it feel to be there? Were the students happy? Like, did the, were the faculty accessible? Like, those types of things so that you end up going somewhere at the end that you're comfortable with. Um, it's possible to pick the wrong school mm-hmm. and um, to not be the kind of doctor that you wanted to be originally or to not be a doctor at all. And um, those are obviously cautionary tales, but um, I have a, a vignette in my book about a student who got into her state school and um, then got into a private school that was much smaller that offered like a lot of scholarship money. And so she chose to go to this more prestigious private school uh, scholarship. And um, she was an older student, very independent learner, had done an executive MBA. Um, she liked to remodel houses and just was very independent. And um, the school was, I, I want to say the cohort was like 40 or something. Mm-hmm. And class was mandatory. They had to be in class 8 to 5 every day. And they only had, <laughs> yeah, they only had um, uh, 18 months of coursework. Mm-hmm. And then they started their clerkships. And it was very accelerated. And she just didn't learn well in the classroom so Mm -hmm. she spent all her time from 5 p.m until midnight and beyond trying to catch up and trying to more efficiently learn the things she needed to and she didn't do well Um, she was away from her family her health suffered Um, she didn't do well on her boards um, ended up going into something completely different than what she'd intended to do in in the beginning of of going into medicine and just had a horrible experience I mean she got through eventually but she had a horrible experience in medical school Um, so Asking questions about the learning modalities and knowing yourself as a learner is also really important. Like, is it all PBL? Is it all small group? Some small group, some lecture? Like, how flexible are the learning modalities? Because I know that's a big deal to a lot of young folks these mm-hmm. days. Is yeah. you know what kind of of uh, freedom do you have to to the greatest extent possible adapt the curriculum to what your learning needs are? So mm-hmm. if you just hate people and you don't go to somewhere that's straight PBL, like don't because it's just going to be a bad. It's gonna be a bad go for you. Yeah, you're gonna have a rough time. And and a lot of it is just that educational environment really matters, you know. Mm -hmm. So, if belongingness and how it feels there, and you you know, a lot of people choose to come to Stretch because they feel like Stretch is where they they felt at home. They feel like their people were here, and um, and chose choose to come here over schools that are less expensive or schools that give them more money because they just said like, this is where I felt the most at home. This is where I feel like I can really thrive. And I think in the long run. you know, medical school is an investment in yourself and your career. And mm-hmm. so to say, well, I didn't have a very good experience for four years and I didn't end up going into the specialty that I originally wanted or didn't even try to explore it because I felt so limited by my environment versus going somewhere where you know you're going to thrive, I think is uh, is important. Yeah. You'll pay back your loans, right? Mm-hmm. Like exactly. Eventually. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's one of the best pieces of advice that someone gave me when I was doing the application. And I think it's pretty applicable for all of medicine too. You have to find your tribe. That's mm-hmm. like a big deal. You have to find... Yeah, where you're most comfortable and going to be happy. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, we we regularly protest and rally and gather mm-hmm. here at this school, and it's a very socially active school. Um, and I think a lot of people are looking for that and want to know that the critical aspects of education, what's going on outside the school walls, um, impacts us as a community and impacts the education that you get. Uh, and I think that not every school is, is, is like that. So, right. yeah. I have one question about um, after applications that comes from Nate, who's another member on our Medicus team. He said that throughout the application process, both on the application and in interviews, he got the question, do you have any relatives in medicine? And he was never sure what the importance of uh, that question is because he says he does have an uncle um, who's a physician, 
but it didn't really influence him all that much. And so he's wondering if someone um, in the, on the applications, if you're asking that question, what does that mean for students? Yeah, I think um, interviewers that ask that just are trying to assess uh, what your habitus looks like, what sort of environment are you coming from, and what what do you know of medicine? Uh, most people who have a close family member uh, that's in medicine know a lot more of the drawbacks of it and know a lot more of, of what the day-to-day after clinics looks like or after the hour, what mm-hmm. that looks like. So I think it's just a it's just a point of connection and curiosity, and I wouldn't overthink it. And if you have someone in medicine, you could say, I have an uncle, but I haven't really hung out with them, or I have this person, they've been really influential and in helping me understand, blah, blah, blah. But it's really exploring, like, do you know what you're getting into? Um, and if you don't, then you can say, I don't, um, and I've had to, you know, explore medicine in the following ways, or I've had to make sure that I've vetted this career decision and this is how I've done it. Um, but it really, I think that speaks to just motivation and do you understand what you're, what you're undertaking? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe kind of switching gears, just there have been some recent changes in, in medicine in terms of like the actual interviewing process. So there were some schools back east that were inter, or, uh, implementing the CASPER system. You also have like the multiple mini interviews. Are there any benefits to one versus the other? Or what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so with MMIs, the multiple mini interviews, I think uh, we don't do them at stretch because we would like a longer duration of two-way communication to assess an applicant's communication skills um, and also give them a chance to get to know us and ask questions about us. And so some schools have actually done like an abbreviated MMI and then a longer interview to sort of satisfy both of those demands. Um, We haven't switched to it here at Stretch because we feel like what we're doing works, and Mm -hmm. MMI is not necessarily better. It's just a different way of assessing some of those interpersonal and problem-solving skills. I like some of the um, scenarios and some of the didactics that they do where you might have to teach somebody else how to build a Lego thing behind a wall, or Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of those that uh, introduce just a little bit of stress are good because when people just start wigging out, you're like, mm, maybe you're not quite right, <laughs> plucky <right>. enough <laughs> for this career. Yeah. Um, and as far as Casper, you know, these are situational judgment tests that try to measure ethics and judgment and um, and uh, social acumen um, mm-hmm. via video scenarios and written scenarios. And I actually met with the Casper team a couple weeks ago, and we're doing a little bit of an analysis to see at Stritch um, what the ranges of scores that we've accepted retroactively for students that have written the exam for other places. So I think you have to take it all seriously. Um, if you're doing a Casper, do the practice one until you feel really comfortable with it because you are going to get graded by raters that are going to um, – that are going to look at how you said that you would handle a certain scenario and and judge it based on how how that stacks up against your peers. So I think the nice thing about Casper is that it's rated by actual people and there are no closed end answers. So there's not like if you said this, it's this score. Like they actually rate them all individually. And if you come up with a solution to a problem that no one's heard of before and they think it's really great, you'll get a good score. So it's not a predetermined uh, multiple choice kind of 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 grading. It also measures something very different. Um, statistically than um, academic ability. So mm-hmm. it's not correlated with academic ability at all. It measures something completely different. So um, so yeah, I'm always looking for ways to improve the process at Stretch, and we're considering whether we would like applicants to write Casper um, for our school. And I think these innovations are trying to find more standardized, objective ways of expanding the applicant pool or increasing the skills that we're selecting for uh, in medicine. So ultimately, I, I mean, I'm for new research and new horizons that pull in uh, different ways of recognizing talent, because I think we've had a pretty narrow lens for far too long. Mm-hmm. 
So a medical school needs to accept a student, but you've also mentioned that the student then needs to choose to go to that school. Do medical schools recruit at all? We do. Uh, depends on where you are in the, I call it the marketplace of schools, um, and how many applications that you that you get. What are your what are your goals? Um, we, I think recruiting it's it's all it's also relationship building. Like we want to make sure that we know the advisors at a lot of the schools that typically apply to us. We want to make sure that we're there to give students information about how to be strong applicants within our pool. We're not trying to keep it all a secret and keep everybody in the dark and say, apply to us and we're going to use a hidden criteria like we are going to tell people what we're looking for. Um, so going out and visiting schools, um, a lot of times it's tabling and applicants will come up and, and ask us questions. Um, we hand out our fact sheets and our summer program information and things like that. So I was just on a very long recruitment trip um, in Texas and um, the admissions team, we split up the, the map different regions that we go to and we do recruitment so some schools don't recruit um, state schools typically don't as much because they have a restriction on only in-state people uh, applying so they might just recruit around their state at various colleges in their own state um, but we draw a national pool so we try to get out as much as possible to make sure that people know about us mm -hmm. do you so NYU just recently started offering free admission do you like kind of it's kind of like a recruitment tool a little bit yeah the um, dream yeah the dream. Do you, do you see that as uh, kind of being a model that's going to work going forward? Or do you see more med schools kind of adopting that? And or, or I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I wish. I mean, the cost of medical education is certainly prohibitive. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people maybe turn away from it because it is expensive. Um, but uh, actually, in my, in my dissertation, I, I studied this theory called maximally maintained inequality. And um, there's a, a time in Ireland when they had a perfect social experiment where college became free. And so they looked at college going and they looked at socioeconomic background and who participated in higher education. And they thought it's going to be so great. We're going to make it free. And all these people from low income backgrounds are going to go to college. They didn't. Mm. They didn't. It didn't change that much um, because the people who are in positions of advantage um, work really hard to maintain that advantage. So if you think of it as a grocery store, there's people who have to go to food banks. There's people who go to Aldi. There's people who go to Jewel. There's people who go to Whole Foods. And there's people who do door-to-door -door organics. Right, like mm -hmm. so, there's like a whole spectrum of all of this is sort of access to food, but it's all based on sort of where you are within the market and how much power and, and choice and elitism you can get. And people are always trying to get the most advantage that they can. And the people at the top maintain the system because the system has them on top. Right. So um, I think with medicine, part of the the difficulty of it is the the econometric delay. So you're you're not earning money and you're not starting your career for even longer. And mm -hmm. then you become a resident and you're still not earning money and you're still not starting your career. Um, so it takes a long time to get to full earning power where many of you probably have friends who went to business school or law school that are just like, yep. I'm on my way to being a partner. <laughs> yep. I'm driving a Beamer. And you're like, I'm eating ramen noodles. <laughs> <be nice>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But I think that, I mean, if you have a, a family base of wealth that helps you endure that delay, you're mm -hmm. in a much better place than if you're medicine or bus and you have nothing to fall back on, right? So mm -hmm. the stakes are much higher when you're from a low economic background and going into something where you're not going to be earning money for a long time. Um, it's much more of a, of a risk and a gamble. So um, I think making medical school free will help. I also don't think that it will impact um, the number of people that go into primary care because of what we know about the economics of medicine and fee-for-service and more lucrative specialties. Um, I'm uh, looking at doing a study but my hypothesis is that the children of physicians go into increasing, increasingly more lucrative specialties, right? So if mm -hmm. your dad's a family physician, you're probably a dermatologist. Mm -hmm. The last five physicians I've talked to whose children are in medicine are in derm, anesthesia, radiology, 
ortho, like, mm-hmm. you know, just very lucrative specialties. And I'm like, you're a family doctor, you're a pediatrician, yeah. but your kids are going in because they have all of the, all of the educational and social capital to make that happen, right? Mm-hmm. All of the advantages because they're at the top, they're entering the system at the top of the system and can maintain a position that now is the top of the system, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think we need different levers to increase the number of people going into primary care mm-hmm. um, making it free is not necessarily gonna help and uh, you know what people don't know about uh, about aid in medical school is that there's only a handful of schools that do exclusively need-based aid mm-hmm. so we perpetuate all of the um, the socioeconomic inequality in how we recruit and and try to attract people to our schools so the people with the highest test scores get um, whisked away with all of the merit-based aid offers, and they're the ones that actually could afford to borrow money, and whose families could afford for them to borrow money, and they're the ones that don't need it. Right. So, um, you know, there's I I know of one school for sure. There's maybe two or three others that do exclusively need-based aid. Everybody else does some combination of both need and merit mm-hmm. to try to decrease the indebtedness of their students. But if you're recruiting students who can afford to borrow and you're giving all those aid to those people because they're the highest numbers and you're playing the numbers game and you want your averages to be really high, that's just perpetuating mm-hmm. the inequality because the poorest people are taking on the most debt. Mm-hmm. So Admissions yeah. at NYU must be outrageous right now. <laughs> must have made it so competitive. Yeah. Um, so maybe just to kind of wrap up, what would be your main message to students applying to med school? What would you want them to, to, to know and to do and... I think students need to um, chill out. Uh, <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and they need to recognize that the person next to you that you think that you're competing against is actually your future colleague. And mm-hmm. if you really like that person, you need to link arms with them and you need to go it together. Um, there's too much nasty competition um, and weeding out in the pre-med process, and I'm not convinced that it yields us the best people. Um, I think medicine is a team sport, and so all the pre-meds out there, like pre-med is a team sport. Um, be a team player and you know be authentic in what you want to do if you love working on political campaigns and you're like oh but it's not related to medicine so what like you said like do the things that you really love to do so that if you end up changing your mind you're not like I wasted my whole life right mm-hmm. so um, the bigger picture is that it is about your life and the pursuit of happiness and genuine contribution to society and there's a thousand ways to do that so um Decide on the things that you love and how you want to spend your time and, and do those things. And um, it, don't compare yourself to other people because there's so many different. I mean, over my years in medical education, I've seen so many different journeys to medicine and not one of them is better than the other. And there's some people that are like, I came out of the womb knowing I was going to be a doctor and, and they just do and they do it and they're great. And there's some people who take longer to come to that or come to it for different reasons. Um, and we need all of that uh, within the profession. Um, if if there's something that you want to do other than medicine that you think you'd be equally happy doing, you should probably do that thing. <laughs> and that's coming from an admissions team. Like, I'm dead serious. It's probably cheaper and easier, so maybe you should do that thing if you think it's of equal reward, happiness, and fulfillment. But if, if you really can't see yourself doing anything else besides being a doctor, then don't give up. You know, find those resources and find people that are willing to help you get there um, and, and make an application and go for it. We so appreciate you sharing this knowledge with us, and I know you have more to share. If people want to continue learning from you, you've mentioned some of your books. Would you mind sharing uh, those with us? So I, I don't have my book published yet. 
Um, it's, it's on its way, though. Yeah, I'm hoping. <laughs> the, my book is really like if I had a whole day to sit on my back porch and just talk to pre-meds about what I've learned over the years, like that's my book. And it's very casual, and it has applicant horror stories in it that are quite entertaining but also instructive. <laughs> um, and it has like little, just little vignettes and stories about, about how to prepare. And it is really about that pivot of – Stop thinking about what do I need to do and start thinking about who do I need to be, um, because then I think you'll be happier and more confident and more grounded. Um, so I'm hoping that, that that will be published soon, mainly because I just would like to have more time to do pre-med outreach, and I don't as I'm getting more advanced in my career. I just have less and less time to spend with uh, with pre-meds. And um, so I have a blog. Uh, it's on reflectivemeded.org. Uh, and if you just Google like tough love for your personal statement, reflective med ed, it'll come up. And that's my sort of missive about personal statements that I wrote after I posted an obnoxious Facebook post about a horrible personal statement. <laughs> and uh, my friend Alden, who's at Harvard, who's the founder of Tour for Diversity, one of the co-founders of Tour for Diversity in Medicine, was like, why don't you tell applicants what they should do? Like, you're always railing and saying that they're so bad. Like, give us some good advice. <laughs> Dina Kai and I was like, fine, here you go. So, but it did challenge me. It's just like, what do I want people to write about and how should they be approaching it? And I think people approach their personal statements just all wrong. So um, that's my very concise advice on on how to do a personal statement. And then I had another um, reflective med ed. I have a couple entries on there. One is about our response to DACA mm-hmm. uh, as a school that you guys probably read. Um, just... <laughs> You know, we stand for something in medicine, and um, and it's important, and especially at Stritch, at a mission-based institution, um, I thought it was important to publish a response to some of the, the letters that we got from alums that were not quite understanding what we were doing and that said that they were disappointed, and I felt like maybe we needed to clarify, yeah, clarify and put some facts out there and, and things like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. um, If listeners want to contact you, do you have like a... I, I, Unfortunately, you're going to be leaving us, so um, we're sad about that. But if if they want to email you or something like that, I don't want to, if you don't want to put out that. We can um, you know, I'm on Twitter, and I'm not I'm not great at checking my Twitter. I need to do a better job of checking my Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter at, at Dr. Nakai, okay. and so that would be a good way to contact me. And then you know, I will be at, at UC Riverside School of Medicine. So I don't mind if if applicants um, contact me and, and want advice, but I I will be honest about how much time I have and, yeah. and things like that. So yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, awesome. thank you for coming on. It's been amazing. Um, and I know from all of us, we're sad to see you go, but we know you're going to do great things wherever you are. So we look forward to hearing all that great news about all the changes that you're. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And, um, and church students are the best. Everywhere I go, uh, the students are the best part of, of my experience. So what you guys are doing is, is great. So thanks for giving me a chance to, to shout out. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. This wouldn't be possible without support from our listeners. Please rate, review, and subscribe. We appreciate donations to help fund the production of this podcast. To support us, go to medicuspodcast.com where you can additionally find show notes, links, and information about our guests. We are at Medicus Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have any questions, comments, or episode suggestions, please submit them on our website. This podcast is intended for general information purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine no patient-doctor relationship is formed, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.